for wave makers comes from listeners like you and the Tampa Bay Times. The Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper is available around the Tampa Bay area and online at tampabay.com. Thanks to the Tampa Bay Times for their support. Good morning and welcome to Wavemakers with Tom and Janet, a weekly conversation with people making a difference in the Tampa Bay region. I'm Janet. And I'm Tom. And running the board today is Florida man John Dunn. Answering phones is um, DJ, DJ Spaceship. Spaceship. Um, if you want to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 and DJ Spaceship will get you through to us. You can also email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813 813- Four three three zero eight eight five. Today's guest has been making waves in Florida journalism circles for more than a decade. Matt Dixon is an NBC reporter based in Tallahassee who previously worked as Florida bureau chief for Politico. He is the author of the forthcoming book Swamp Monsters, Trump versus DeSantis, the greatest show on earth, or at least in Florida. Welcome to Wavemakers, Matt. I'm. Thank you for having me. I'm feeling a lot of pressure with a DJ with that name, with a name that cool. I, I, I was, I was a little nervous, and now I'm very nervous. At, you know, and he is super cool. Just saying, DJ Spaceship is the coolest. I, uh, I have zero doubt. Quite honestly, <laughs> um, Matt started covering Florida in 2008 when he moved to the Villages after graduating from Marquette University to work for the Villages Sun. We'll talk about what it was like to live and work in a community where everybody was old enough to be his grandparents. But first, we want to talk about Swamp Monsters and the fascinating characters uh, that make up this book. Uh, Starting with Ron DeSantis. Um, Of course. Yeah, so a year ago, it seems like only yesterday, uh, Ron DeSantis was the flavor of the month. He was the darling of the conservative movement. Uh, America's governor. America's governor. He had just been reelected by a 20-point margin over Democrat Charlie Crist, and he was about to start a legislative session with a, a legislators who could not have been more compliant to his needs as a potential presidential candidate. They were going to pass a slew of performative legislation aimed at burnishing DeSantis's right-wing credentials. He seemed to be the Republican most capable of beating Trump. Uh, but here we are a year later. DeSantis is way behind in the polls in the key states of Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and may not even beat Nikki Haley. So, Matt, what the heck happened? To DeSantis, I mean. Oh, are you there? Matt, are you there? We seem to have lost Matt for a second. Until we can get him back, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, amazing... Uh, transformation we have seen uh, because the legislature starts a week from today and uh, Swamp Monsters is actually going to be released a week from today. Uh, You can order it now online from Amazon, but um, until then, uh, we will be talking about Swamp Monsters uh, because uh, Matt has written a book about the transformation of Florida politics. Are you there, Matt? Yeah, I, I can hear you just fine. Okay. So what happened with DeSantis here in the last year? Uh, he, he has gone from uh, seeming to be uh, the, the the guy who was going to beat 
Trump uh, to the guy who seems to like he's going to be fading pretty quickly. Right. And, and I, I think we, we cut out for a second there. What I was kind of getting into is the idea that he may not have ran the, the perfect presidential campaign. And I think a lot of people acknowledge that now, but also Trump's grip on the Republican electorate, uh, sort of the most active conservative voters across the country is still very strong. So as we move further and further away from the moment that you guys described and DeSantis was sort of on the top of the mountain, I think we're, we're beginning to realize that no matter what he did, no matter what boxes he checked, if everything was perfect, this was still a Trump election cycle and still a Trump moment. So I, I think the biggest factor isn't anything necessarily DeSantis did or didn't do. It's just Republican voters, at least the primary voters, the ones who, who vote the most and are most active, aren't quite ready to leave Trump. Although there were things that he did uh, that you mention uh, in the book, uh, starting with when he kicked off the campaign. Uh, and I guess even before that, but let's start with the campaign kickoff uh, on Twitter. That turned out to be quite the disaster, right? Yeah, that, that did not go well. If, if some of your, your listeners might remember, he launched his campaign on Twitter, now X, and it was a lot of glitches. The, the rollout just did not go as they had envisioned. Because of technical the, issues, right? Wasn't it there was a technical problem? Yeah, there was to, to, to open up the exchange, there were some big time technical issues. And by the time they eventually got their footing and by the end, the tech stuff was worked out. But by then, the, the story about his presidential launch had sort of sort of already be writ been written. And, and even outside of the tech issues, it just sort of amplified how kind of, quote, online DeSantis was. His entire team and his persona was very focused on Twitter and social media. And, and I, I think some critics of the moment, some who might like DeSantis, but were critical of how he's running his campaign we're saying hey guys this you know we, we might need to talk to some some real voters at some point as opposed to just the, the the online personalities that that are already engaged but even before the twitter launch uh he had run into some problems when he started talking about ukraine right Yes, yes. He, he, he originally uh, sort of sided with, uh, I, I guess you would, as, as Trump would define them, kind of the America first crowd that that getting out of, of Ukraine or that putting a focus in more more tax dollars towards Ukraine was a good idea or at least something that should be considered uh, or excuse me, keeping keeping out of, of that conflict is, is something that the U.S. should consider moving forward. He had a conversation with some of his donors, um, most notably, and a lot of this was reported at the time. Some of his big donors didn't like that perspective. Perspective. So he very quickly, and I forget the exact timeline, but a week or so kind of walked it back and, and took what would be considered more of a, a neocon position on that issue, a traditional Republican position on that. Uh, and, and he really tried to tow the Ukraine line in a way that, that got some egg on his face fairly early. He was able to move on from that moment, but it was definitely another example of uh, uh, an early sort of misstep, if you will. Although it does seem like uh, many members of, of the Republican Party have now moved to his position. Yeah, I, I think without question, through hindsight, that position, you know, might have been a bit more popular now than it was then. But it was a particular moment in time where it was not uh, a, not a good place to be sitting for, again, sort of the, the very conservative Republican primary voters who who follow, you know, every every bit of messaging and every sort of turn of the screw on, on, on political stuff, especially as it impacts their party. And at that moment in time, it, it was a position that got them on the, the other side of, of, of those voters that are, are very very key in primaries. Uh, well, one thing also about DeSantis that he was so popular was because of his positions on COVID and so much time has passed since then. Does Do you think that that has, uh, you know, he can't ride that forever all the way through 2024? 
Yeah, without question, I think we're seeing that. And there's two things with that. I mean, the, the COVID stuff was several years ago and the height of the pandemic was no longer on anyone's sort of mind. None of the other presidential candidates ran on it like he has. His record kind of uh, what helped him rise to, to national conservative fame, but some time had passed there. But even if he wanted to lean into it, he didn't do it initially in his campaign. The first few months uh, when he was trying to avoid attacking President Trump, because I don't think he wanted to anger his supporters or voters, he didn't lean into some of the Fauci or the vaccine stuff that we hear a lot of today. So there was even sort of a further self-imposed gap there. He didn't really lead with some of those things uh, focused on his record and sort of contrasting what, what Trump did during that period of time. So one, there had been several years that have passed totally, and, and then he didn't even really open up with that message, which I think some expected. So by the time he really leaned into it, they were already kind of in, if not desperation mode, a moment where the polls were were no longer in his favor. But the other thing the campaign has done uh, for DeSantis, or you should you could say to DeSantis, is expose his personality to the nation. And you you, you write quite a bit in the book. You even refer to him as the weird Ron DeSantis, right? I mean, you met him when he was a pretty obscure member of Congress from the Jacksonville area. And you write in the book about your impressions of him then is that he's, he's arrogant, he's aloof, he doesn't seem to be able to, to engage uh, with you. I mean, you know, you all, he, he wanted to meet with you, you were a reporter, and he ended up not impressing you at all. In fact, left you with a memory of a guy who seemed really kind of awkward. So... What about that side of his personality that has hurt his campaign? Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the first time I met him is way back when he ran for Congress for the first time, and it was over coffee, and it was just a, a, a very awkward exchange to the degree there was any exchange, and that had always <laughs> kind of stuck with me. And then, you know, as his footprint just grew, I think the person that I saw in that coffee shop in Tallahassee, Florida, was just sort of the person that, that a broader and broader set of, of audience, you know, kind of saw. And I think your initial impression of him from this perspective is generally, even if you like his policies and his positions, is always kind of a, you have to take a double take. It's a, a very um, a, a aloof sort of personality. And it's, it's he's, he doesn't do as well in settings like Iowa, New Hampshire, where you have to handshake and, and meet one-on-one -on -one with voters. He excelled and did very, very well running in Florida. Florida has 10 expensive media markets. It's not a one-on-one -on -one state. And he, he did very, very well in his reelection. He won by historic margins. But running for governor in Florida, or running for anything in Florida, is a significantly different experience than in Iowa or New Hampshire. And once he's sort of gotten in those settings where an interpersonal brand of communication is, is more important than, than, say, running for political office in Florida, it really hasn't gone that well for him as, as, as most of the nation has now seen. Um, well, I would also say part of the reason why he won by historic margin in 2022 um, is because of COVID. I mean, that was he was still, I, I think, feeling that, you know, cloud on that COVID cloud uh, then. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Wavemakers on WMNF with Janet and Tom. And our guest is um, NBC News reporter and author uh, Matt Dixon, who has written um, the book um, Swamp Monsters. Uh, Trump v. DeSantis, the greatest show on earth. Um, let's talk a little bit. If you would like to join our conversation, you can call us at 813-239-9663 or you can send us an email um, to dj at um, 
WMNF.org. I did want to ask you about that first meeting you had with Trump. Did he eat pudding with you? Was that? Did you see that? I, no, no, DeSantis did not eat pudding with me. I think he barely even touched his coffee, which is the reason why we were there. So I, uh, I, I can't say I've been uh, been a, a first person witness to any of the pudding shenanigans that we all now know. We all now know so well. I bring that up because you mentioned it in the book that there are certain stories that seem to resonate with voters for some reason, or maybe it's just the media. I don't know. But uh, can you tell the story about the pudding? Yes. Well, the... the yeah, the the initial story was reported by by another outlet, but we mentioned it in there and got into a little more detail. Um, he uh, there was a, a famous anecdote that came out in one of the many DeSantis profiles that in front of staff he would eat pudding out of one of those pudding cups with his fingers, sort of just open it up, tear it open, and start eating the pudding without a spoon and just shoveling yeah. it into his face. And political opponents, most notably the Trump campaign, sort of a uh, seized on that anecdote that was reported and, and really uh, sort of sort of amplified it, made it a bigger deal. They they gave him nicknames over it. And for, for a moment in time, Ron DeSantis was very much in his pudding era, which is not right. a place that uh, he cared to be. Yeah, I remember doing that in fourth grade, actually, eating chocolate pudding out of a can when we learned about poi in Hawaii. We thought that was very funny to eat it with our fingers. Maybe he thought he was eating poi. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm certain I've done it maybe at one point in my life, but I was probably younger than 10. Yeah, fourth grade. The um, uh, We've got an email from David, Mr. White Pepper Bryant, um, and he wants to know, Matt, if you actually we want to move on to this anyway, to talk about Casey DeSantis's influence on Ron DeSantis's policies and campaign. Um, David says it seems like she has an outside sized influence when compared to other politicians wives. So let's talk about that. And then we want to talk also more about sort of the evolution of the DeSantis Trump relationship and how Casey fits into that. But what do you think, Matt? How about Casey DeSantis? Do you think she has an outsized influence on Ron DeSantis's policies? Oh, without question, she's hugely influential. She has, uh, a, a, she's always been politically ambitious. has has a fair amount of political talent. She gives very good speeches. She certainly knows how to operate in front of a camera with her her TV background. And yeah, well, he, former he, TV anchor in Jacksonville, yeah. right? For those that's, who that's correct, that's correct. She was a yeah, former former TV personality there, and and it really shows. So she she without question on the policy front, and even the forward facing sort of political stuff and speeches and, and and TV ads, things like that. She has a huge role. She actually had, at one point had a office in the governor's suite in the state capitol where the really? chief of staff the, the, the chief of staff historically had an office which is not something anyone had ever seen so i think both symbolically and and uh, very much in a real way she was seen as a, a huge influential presence she's the the top advisor to, to desantis and really the, the lone voice i think he gives a lot of weight to um his his advisors more kind of um, offer reassurance that the decision she making is is the right decision, more of sort of a yes man dynamic. But Casey, I think, is someone that he truly, truly does listen to and respect. And well, you have a little anecdote about her that talks about her, um, the role that she played that also relates to this, this changing relationship between Trump and DeSantis. So, you know, on the book, you have these two, Trump and DeSantis, the pictures of them face to face yelling at each other. It looks like they're yelling sure. at each other. But there was a time when they were allies, they started off that way. Um, and DeSantis did the the TV ad that I'm sure a lot of folks remember. A lot of you remember where he did the TV ad where he was reading the children's story about building a wall um, and talking basically uh, it was an ode to Donald Trump. And Casey DeSantis wasn't a fan of that ad, correct? 
Yeah, that was uh, sort of the the 10,000 foot theme of the book is that the relationship between Trump and DeSantis isn't always what it was or what it seemed. There was always a bit of tension. And that was one of the first markers. That was back in twenty eight the 2018 campaign before DeSantis was even governor. Right. So very early on. Casey um, wasn't a huge fan of the wall ad uh, and, and she had to be talked into the idea that it was good to run it. She and, thought it was and, silly, just kind of juvenile yeah. and yeah. stupid. I, I think that's it's a good way. That's I think I think silly silly is definitely a, a perspective she had. And the campaign finally convinced her, well, you know, if we want to win, these are things we need to do. So she sort of relented and, and, and eventually that got back to, to Trump world and Trump's orbit and uh, the idea that uh, uh, that they didn't like this ad. They didn't like following his wall messaging lead, I think, kind of annoyed uh, Donald Trump. And, and that was an early signal that, you know, things were things were still fine. And then forward in, in a public way, they were allies for a while. But there was always a bit of mistrust and certainly the perception that Donald Trump didn't think Ron DeSantis was loyal enough because of his endorsement. That's a, a reoccurring theme throughout the relationship, this idea that DeSantis wasn't loyal enough. What's funny is that that ad actually got a lot of attention and it sort of because it used humor and he does not seem to have a lot of humor, it, it mm-hmm. kind of humanized him. So ironically, it kind of worked for him, don't you think? Yeah, no, I, I think it absolutely worked. Um, if, you, if you're willing to kind of hold your nose and do that, to do do those sort of sort of ads, I, I think in the moment Trump was still hugely popular, and, and the wall was very popular with Republicans. I think the ad, without question, served its purpose as far as you know, speaking to, to voters in a Republican primary, and it certainly didn't hurt him in the general election, as as we saw, because he won overwhelming or PP won. This was the the first race; it was closer, but he still won. So. I don't think that that it hurt him really in any way. And, and to, to your point, I think it probably helped him. And, and you know, uh, until your book came out, nobody was aware of this tension. Nobody was aware that they were mocking Trump behind his back and things like that. So it, it in that in that way, it, it you know, it worked pretty well. Yeah, no, I, I think the. Uh, and and the the two camps were able to to hold it together for years after that as far as the appearance of of being close political allies it didn't really fall apart to the presidential stuff came into the picture so it wasn't um you know a, a totally destructive moment but i think it was very instructive to point to the idea that hey these guys weren't always they were never as close as as we thought they were in in, in public um if you're just tuning in you're listening to wave makers on WMNF and our guest is Matt Dixon author of the book Trump v DeSantis he's also an NBC news reporter you can um, call us at 813-239-9663 if you have a question or a comment um, for Matt, or you can email us at dj at wmnf.org. So another, um, around this period of time, this was 2018, DeSantis is running for Congress, trying to get Trump to support him in that run, right? Um, was he, he was seeking an endorsement of Trump in that run? Not in the the seeking the endorsement. Really, that was in twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah, really didn't. Yeah, when in in twenty, well, he ran for re-election in twenty twenty two. So by that point, it wasn't the towards the end of the twenty twenty two midterms. The relationship behind the scenes had really kind of deteriorated, and there was a. It wasn't super bad publicly. There's a moment where Trump had a Miami rally. And very noticeably, it was right before election day. He had a big political rally. He very noticeably didn't invite DeSantis. He invited a bunch of other Florida people. And it was very clear. And DeSantis did his own stuff while Trump was in his state. It was very clear. That was kind of one of the most public early signs that, hey, uh, this is this is falling apart relatively quickly as Trump increasingly sees DeSantis as a threat. But that moment didn't come until later in the 2022 cycle. Um, DeSantis wasn't exactly groveling for an endorsement the way he 
was in 2018. But that's because he didn't need it. One, at that point, he was going to win re-election easily no matter what. And two, the relationship just had materially changed. So then it was in, in 2020. Let's talk about that then. In 2020, when DeSantis was trying to get um, Trump's... 2018 is when he's running for governor. Twenty. Okay, 2018, running for governor and trying to get Trump's um, yeah, endorsement. A, what, one yeah. of the things about your book is that, uh, you know, for those of us who kind of live and breathe this kind of stuff, you know, you forget um, th- things have changed so much. Um, and, and so in, in this case, Adam Putnam, he was supposed to be the Republican nominee. Yeah. He was going to win the nomination. That's right. And... Um, so it's pretty remarkable. I mean, pretty much DeSantis owes everything to Donald Trump. He wouldn't have gotten the nomination without Trump, right? It, it would have certainly been much more difficult. And right, walked, to be governor, yes. Yeah, and, and he walked right into it, so yeah. And, but one of the a story in there that I find to be really funny, though, and also this whole idea about these fluid and changing relationships in politics is Matt Gates, how he figured into the Trump endorsement of Ron DeSantis. And there's a funny story you have in there about Matt Gates waiting, going to meet with Trump, thinking he's going to be talking about rescue dogs. At the right. White House. At the White House. And right. some of the um, Adam Putnam supporters, Pam Bondi and Brian Ballard. Brian were, Ballard is the biggest Republican fundraiser in Florida. Lobbyist, concerned that Matt was going to be asking Trump to endorse DeSantis, so they blocked the meeting, right? So Trump, De- Gates ended up not being able to meet with Trump in order to um, uh, uh, lobby for him to support. Well, actually, for the rescue dogs, he had no idea. So tell us about that. I'm, I'm messing up the story, Matt. You tell it. Uh, there was a, yeah, there was a furious lobbying campaign sort of behind the scenes early on for the DeSantis supporters to get Trump to endorse and Putnam supporters who Putnam was very close to Mike Pence, who was vice president at the time they served in Congress together. So the Put- Putnam people were going to, to Mike Pence and trying to, if not get DeSantis to, to, or excuse me, Trump to endorse Putnam, at least stay out of it, at least not, not give his name to DeSantis. And as part of that, there was a, a, a supposed meeting or there was a meeting supposedly about rescue dogs where Matt Gates and a few others were going to talk to to Trump and and sort of bring some polling and, and just you know Shantis, this is a guy you can support and some Putnam folks who are also very influential with Trump uh, ended up getting that meeting and, and and Gates never Gates never got the meeting ultimately Gates Gates and Team DeSantis in that moment won because they got Trump's uh, endorsement but it's a uh, a funny funny anecdote and sort of a snapshot of the, uh, the the truly sort of brutal political jockeying that was going on in that moment for for Trump's Trump support. And Gates went on to uh, I think didn't he uh, chair DeSantis's uh, transition team? Yep, he was a, he was a hugely influential person in DeSantis's first campaign in 2018. He he called a lot of the shots in that 2018 race. He's since become a, a, a huge supporter of, of President Trump, and right. he's. He's in Trump's camp, not DeSantis's anymore. But in that moment in time, Matt Gates was uh, uh, functionally one of the, if not the top advisor and, on yeah. DeSantis. And then back in that story, too, um, Pam Bondi and Brian Ballard, who also were, you know. Um, they were Putnam people. They were Putnam people. Now they're, uh, so everybody they're sucked. All Every, they're Trump, all sucked into the Trump vortex. They've all yeah. been sucked into the Trump vortex. Yeah, well, be, becoming uh, becoming president, uh, a certain uh, you have a little bit of leverage when you're in the White House that you you, you know you otherwise wouldn't. So I, I think that uh, that that that's bound to happen. But Pam Bondi, though, uh, who's from Tampa, for those of us, those of you who are 
not paying close attention to all the ins and outs of politics. Pam Bondi uh, worked at the state attorney's office here in, in Tampa. Anyway, so she is still team Trump did not switch over to DeSantis for the presidential race, right? Yeah, very much so. She was running a super PAC for Trump for a while, and she's, I, I'm, I'm not sure where she, she's somewhere still in the Trump orbit, the, the exact mission of that expanding orbit. I'm, I'm not sure, but she's very much team Trump. And she's yes. working for Brian Ballard. She works for the, for the Ballard. Yeah, lobby. I believe she, yep, she, she's, right. I believe she's with that firm, yes. Right. Um, let's go to the phones. We've got Gary and St. Pete. Gary and St. Pete, you are on the line. What is on your mind? Well, good morning. Um, I was just wondering if uh, your guest or any of you hear what I do, eventually a Trump DeSantis ticket. Because after all, Trump hated Ted Cruz and then suddenly he's campaigning for him and calling him Texas Ted. You're saying, could we see a Trump DeSantis ticket? That's your, yeah. um, what do you yeah. think? What do you think, Matt? I don't think so, only because things have gotten so personal between the two. For for Trump and DeSantis, where their relationship began to where it is now is almost as personal as is political. And I know he's had moments with, he had one with Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, as your, your caller points out. Um, but I think it would take two things in order for that to happen. They would have to forget about the personal nature of the dispute. And also DeSantis would sort of have to, to, to forgive and show some public contrition, which I'm not sure he's going to do. Um, and he, he said multiple times that he's not not interested in becoming vice president. So, I mean, it's, it's politics. Stranger things have certainly happened. But I, I think it would be a, a pretty big long shot at this point. And so, you know, the, the biggest swamp monster in your book is is Donald Trump. And so... Conversely to um, DeSantis, who has seen his fortunes decline in the last year, you've seen Trump rise in the polls. Um, and, and you mentioned early on uh, in, this, in this interview that you think that ultimately that would have stopped DeSantis anyway, uh, even if he had run the perfect campaign, which he has not. Uh, but what is your analysis uh, of of how Trump has managed to uh, come back and become the dominant force in the Republican Party, even uh, though he's been I, indicted four different times and is facing more than ninety charges, and you know could end up in prison uh, before he's uh, uh, from. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, and I think a lot of those things have actually intensified his base of support because a lot of the Republican primary voters do see that as you know whether it's true or not from a. a political lens through how a lot of primary voters view it. They view the the DOJ and, and various state uh, justice systems sort of unfairly coming after Trump. I would talk to voters the day or two after you know an indictment would drop and almost, I talked to several who, who were DeSantis supporters who after that said, you know, they're back with Trump. So I think some of those indictments, some of the things that historically would hurt a, a, a politician would probably end a political career has been nothing but rocket fuel for Trump. It, he's been very, very Teflon. But to the broader point of how he got back to this moment so quickly, I just think it was him communicating again. He was relatively quiet during the midterms. He wasn't doing that many rallies. He was kind of off social media. Once Republican primary voters were just reminded of Trump, this guy, and you know, in the previous administration, they loved and voted for in waves. Once he came back on the scene, that really just his emergence alone without anything that specific really helped him sort of not just bridge the gap that had grown with DeSantis, but sort of become the, the dominant figure in, in Republican politics again. Did the, did the turnabout, though, begin with the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago? 
I don't know if it began. It, it very well could have. I, I guess I haven't thought about it from a starting gun perspective, but it certainly um, intensified support with with those who felt like he was, you know, uh, being unfairly targeted. And at that moment in time, it was, you know, the the, the most active and sort of vocal members of the conservative party, you know, the, the folks who have huge social media followings who are, who are, you know, advisors and, and things in, in that space, who people who have platforms, I think at that point really began communicating the yeah, justice system was unfairly targeting Trump. And I think it's certainly intensified support for those who may have been getting some Trump fatigue or looking for another candidate. Many of those folks started to come home to Trump after, after that stuff began. I want to read a couple emails we have. DeMarco, uh, uh, Greg says, um, what about the fact that, uh, this is about DeSantis, what about the fact that his background is basically unexamined? He was supposed to protect prisoners' human rights at Gitmo. Instead, he enabled torture. I believe there were also issues with his teaching of the Civil War, uh, that's similar to the Nikki Haley um, uh, flub talking about how the Civil War was not about slavery. That was what, this, this is what this emailer is talking about. All of our governor's laws in quotes, are human rights violations, and it's only a matter of time before they are all declared unconstitutional. I don't know about all of the laws, uh, all of those laws, but quite a few. And then we got another email from David Bryant who says, I don't like Trump, but I did really like a comment that he made about DeSantis. He said that Ron needs a personality transplant, but those haven't been invented yet. Um, and he does, you know, Donald Trump comes up with these things. It's weird that someone so completely lacking in charisma like Ron has made it this far in politics. Um, yeah, I would, I would, what do you think about that? Um, what, to what do you attribute, um, DeSantis's success, um, Matt, when we are considering him so awkward and uh, having such a difficult personality? Two things. I think, I mean, if folks remember the, the previous governor, Rick Scott, who was also elected two terms. I don't think anyone saw him as a classic, charming politician. And Not he was a, so much. And he, he was a two-term governor of the state of Florida, and, and DeSantis is in the same boat. And I think it goes back to something I talked about earlier, where you can truly run statewide in Florida because it's so big on TV alone. You're, you're not doing the sort of in-person diner sort of things that you would do in early presidential states. Right. There are no so walking Lawtons anymore. Nobody's going to yeah. walk this state campaign. No, 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 nobody's, nobody's, nobody's doing that. So I, I don't think, I mean, our past two governors have not had sort of stereotypical politician demeanors or, or personalities. And yeah, I, I thought so. I think you, you know, you can kind of overcome that these days, and and also for for DeSantis, I mean, there's truly been a collapse of the Florida Democratic Party. He won by 20 points, which you cannot take away from how impressive that is. But he was functionally running without opposition. The Democrats had no money. They had a candidate that most Democrats didn't even particularly care for. So there was his reelection. It specifically, there was DeSantis, a very strong Republican Party in Florida, running against Democrats who were at their weakest point in, in a very long time. So I, I think that also, you know, helped helped him, you know, get to get to where he is in a very strong second term. You do devote a chapter to the, the Florida Democrats. Um, what do you attribute their seeming complete collapse? Uh, and, and is there uh, is there still life left in, in the Democratic Party in Florida? Being out of power for as long as they have been is, is, is really sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. At a certain point, you know, having no control, there's no really incentive for, for donors to continue to give. It's very difficult to build a bench of, of talented candidates that, that can rise for higher offices when you're not even winning lower down ticket offices. You need some sort of political experience and, and candidates who kind of know what they're doing that can rise to the ranks, and none of that's happening. Um, the, the current chairwoman, uh, Nikki Freed of the, the Florida 
Democratic Party. She has injected a bit of energy and life into it. Uh, they're, they're getting more attention and sort of being more vocal than they had been previously, which I, I think some Democrats is a positive sign. But the the voter registration gap with, with Republicans having more registered voters in Florida than Democrats keeps widening. I don't think anyone really believes like Rick Scott's the biggest state level election up in 2024. I don't think there are many people who actually think that the Florida Democrats are ready to win a U.S. Senate race. So right now that party would would say it as life and it's sort of rebuilding, but its focus is more at, at like state state legislative races, winning a key state house seat, winning a key state Senate seat, I think would be seen as good progress for them. And and we'll we'll see if they can pull that off in the next election cycle. But it's 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 definitely a, a down era for Democrats here in Florida. Well, the Republicans control; they have a supermajority in the in the House and the Senate, uh, and and they control redistricting. How can the Democrats hope to win legislative seats? I mean, we saw what happened. Let, let's let's talk about the legislature briefly because you know they convene uh, a week from now, and a year ago, uh, you have a, a brief section in in the book talking about the many different uh, uh, laws that, that they passed for him. And, and I think there were something like 18 different pieces of legislation regarding uh, trans uh, legislation. Uh, there were gun bills. Yes. It, it was just one thing after another. And I don't think we've ever seen um, a governor have their way with the legislature the way DeSantis had. Would you agree? Yeah, w- without question. He was, this would have been, my first session was 2010. So I've been through a bunch now. I've never seen a legislature as compliant to a governor as this one. Um, Jeb Bush was slightly before my time when he was governor. My understanding is he had quite a bit of sway over the legislature as well, but it was different to some degree. Uh, most people, Jeb Bush, I think DeSantis uh, sort of rules much more by stick than carrot. So it was just a, a very interesting vibe in Tallahassee as far as lawmakers, Republican lawmakers to take vote after vote after vote for these presidentially focused bills. And I do very much think there are pockets of even Republicans in Tallahassee who weren't necessarily in favor of some of the votes they had to take. But it was just a moment in time where they were um, sort of doing what, what the governor needed them to do or else there was concerns they'd, they'd face a primary challenger or have their own budget items cut. It was sort of that moment in time where DeSantis was just muscling through his agenda with uh, you know national aspirations in view. Well, and I know you, you used to cover the legislature intensely, uh, and now you have a, a, a much bigger aperture with NBC. But what is your reporter reporting showing now regarding the next session? Do you see the legislature being a little more independent, or are they going to continue to go along with whatever Ron DeSantis wants? If they do start to flex some independence, I don't think it would be this session, but the next one. The reason I say that is the the two current legislative leaders of Senate President Kathleen Pasadena and House Speaker Paul Renner are still supporters of DeSantis. Paul Renner, the House Speaker specifically, is sort of one. It was one of his biggest uh, bundlers. He he raised a, a great deal of money for Governor DeSantis and was very supportive of him politically. I think it's hard to envision a scenario where the the House led by Paul Renner really deviates from DeSantis too much. Um, when there's new legislative leaders in place uh, and, and DeSantis doesn't have sort of the national star power he had, that might be an interesting moment in time to look at the relationship between the legislature and the governor. But that wouldn't start until next year, in, in my guess. I, I think this year it might not seem as, as blunt. I, I, I think there's just going to be less high profile Oh, we're getting a little, losing a little bit of your um, signal there. Or uh, showy sort of political bills. 
Let's go. I'm going to go to an email. We've got an email from Jeannie Glass. Looks like, um, Matt, your um, signal's coming in and out. Um, this is an email from Jeannie. I, I, I can hear you. Okay. okay. Um, it says, I'm told the big insurance companies helped pave a road to Washington for DeSantis in exchange for enacting tort reform, um, lessening the power of consumers to sue businesses when injured on business property. Please ask your guest if you've heard that. Matt, have you heard anything about that, about big insurance companies? Yeah. Well, there were there were three. I mean, the Florida's property insurance market has, has been well covered, is, is sort of in, in shambles right now. The legislature has passed three fairly large omnibus, large insurance bills that were almost unilaterally viewed as, as more favorable for insurance companies than, say, trial attorneys or, or attorneys that represent property owners. So he's, he has definitely gotten that criticism. I, I would argue he wasn't super intensely involved in those negotiations. Those the, the insurance stuff was kind of led by the legislature, but he did sign those bills into law and they were very favorable for the insurance industry. I, I think that's that's without question. If you're um, just tuning in, uh, are, we are speaking with... Um, Matt Dixon, he is the author of the forthcoming book, Swamp Monsters, Trump versus DeSantis, the greatest show on earth, or at least in Florida. And the book is going to be released officially next week, although we were lucky to get an advanced copy. And uh, it's a, a week fasc- from today. It's a fascinating read. Uh, you might be surprised at things you've already forgotten happened in the last year. Um, let, let's move on to another personality that you talk about um, in your book, Christina Pashaw, who is now working on the DeSantis campaign, campaign, but for a while was running his communications office as governor. Um, and she sort of has, I, I think, kind of set the tone for the DeSantis campaign. And it's a little bit different than what you what we've seen in the past from communications, political communications pros. But, but especially government communications. Government I mean, communications. She seems to be a good example of someone who has taken what used to be, you know, a, you know, it's a taxpayer-funded position of being the press secretary or the spokesperson for the governor and using it as a campaign tool, uh, referring to opponents as groomers and pedophiles. I mean, some of the nastiest stuff I think I've ever seen a government communications person. Well, and attacking journalists. A- attacking journalists. Right, so usually a government, commu- yeah. in the past, a government communications person, if they if a journalist had a request, they would respond to the request. Jane and I have both <laughs> done that in the past, so we know what we're talking about. <laughs> On both sides. Yeah. So, um, but talk about her, um, Matt. Tell us about her and what role she figures into uh, DeSantis' world. Yeah, I mean, it, she was the beginning of the attempt of DeSantis to sort of change how, uh, you know, taxpayer funded or public sector communications works as you had mentioned it was became very very personal uh with with reporters and political opponents they would openly talk about how it's you know not only not their job to help reporters but actually make their the members media me, members of the media life more difficult and harder to do their jobs which for a while they did um they you know it's still to this day that the administration has functionally shut down the the public records arm of state government unless you're willing to sue to get records you know good luck you'll you'll wait years that is the part they seem to forget that there is a law that requires them to produce public records they don't seem to Uh, understand yeah and and generally the law well i i think the calculation they're making is most media organizations these days can't afford to sue so most most times when these things go to court the administration has a tendency to lose because i think they know they're you know for the most part on the wrong side of that one but if no one sues them the the records just sort of collect dust um and back on the 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 communications front i mean it was sort of uh, a a shocking turn when when that that crew 
led by Christina kind of first came on the scene because it was just like a style we had never seen before. It quickly became almost easier to ignore. Um, they swing at every pitch. They attack you for everything. So in a moment like that, it just kind of becomes white noise. And considering where DeSantis is now and, and the nation has seen that that press strategy, it seems to have kind of failed. There was a moment in time where, hey, is this this going to be the, the new version of Republican unions? Is this just sort of the new normal? And I think we've gone the other direction. Um, some of the voices that were loudest and meanest have really been sidelined. And, and I think uh, nature will heal, as the kids say, and it'll it'll sort of restore a sense of a little bit of normalcy, uh, if not upon DeSantis's return, certainly um, with, with the next governor. Um, let's talk a little bit in the last, um, 15 minutes or so that we have here, um, about your story, Matt, about your journey to where you are. How did you go from, how did you end up writing this book? And let's talk a little bit, let's go back to the villages. Yeah, let's go back to the villages. You just got out of college and you go to work in the villages. So you were 22. Yeah, I graduated from a college campus and moved right to retirement community. It was, it was a hack yeah. way to learn the state. It was uh, moving. I, I went to, to college in Milwaukee, which is there's, you know, bars and restaurants and all sorts of fun stuff to do. And all of a sudden I was uh, found myself uh, driving around a retirement community in a golf cart. So it was uh, it was quite the transition. You must have been, you know, stopping those golf carts everywhere you went. Those ladies must have been all over you. He has no response to that. He has no response to that. um, uh, We have an email from David um, Bryant who says, um, I remember reading that one of the newspapers in the villages is just a propaganda outlet for the developer Gary Morris. Did you work for that newspaper (laughs) or one that is a more legitimate (laughs) news outlet? (laughs) In fact, you don't have a lot of nice things to say about your old employer. Uh, In the book, it's pretty much all all under 25. So we we, we kept each other you you can't, uh, we're you're, losing, you're breaking, you're, you're up, breaking up Matt but that's okay well, I, I, I want to read this one sentence from the book uh, the village's uh, daily sun a marketing rag masquerading as a big time newspaper desperately trying to convince you of its respectability and comparing it to an alien yes. trying to blend in as a human being in the movie men in black so it that's, sounds like it sounds like the <laughs> reputation it it, it, it yeah, deserves was, reputations earned. Um, let's see, were you? Able- yes, I, I would say that there was one. Oh yeah, we're 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 Matt's with us by Zoom, um, and so therefore it looks like we're um, got the signal coming in and out. Um, so the villages, sure. did, did they let you do real reporting there? Were you actually able to do real reporting at that paper? It, it it depends if uh, if it was against someone outside of the villages yes and i got a couple good clips there that allowed me to move on but no it was it was it was incre- it was incredibly protectionist um if if the villages had a preferred political candidate you couldn't write bad things about them it was it was it was not a not a newspaper in any traditional sense it was um you know like i say it was it looked very nice they had the the best printing press money could buy so it looked like a real newspaper and it was you know still still very large and and, and very thick when it hit your doorstep but the reporting itself was was uh the, i think the the slogan we made up then was no bad news happens in the villages and that was sort of reflected on the front page of the newspaper uh, no bad news especially especially the about the villages you don't want any <laughs> bad news about the villages now how did you end up leaving how long were you at the villages and where'd you go next about a year and a half, and I was able to get enough good clips to. I ended up in in Panama City at the Panama City News Herald. So I lived in in Bay County up in the Panhandle for 
I guess maybe. Oh yes, we're now we're we're losing you. So you were you went up to over So you were you went up to to um you were at the villages for just about a year and a half, and then you were in um the Panhandle, and then you went to Tallahassee. And who were you? Who? Well, give us more. Tell us how you ended up in uh in Tallahassee. Yeah, no, no, I, I have to. And I, I've all, I, I always wanted to cover the state capital in Florida. It always interests me. So they, Jacksonville sent me out to Tallahassee and I've been there ever since. I, I live there to this day, but I've been with several different organizations, Politico and, and now NBC, uh, you know, covering the legislature, state politics and, and sort of all the things that were of personal interest to me. I'm a journalism, political science major. So it was sort of a, an ideal opportunity and sort of the, the job I hoped to get when I was in college. So it's worked out really well, even though I hopped around a, a bit early on in my career. You, yeah, you went from the, um, the villages to NBC News. That's not bad. Um, and what about... Let's yeah, right. No, it, it's <laughs> it, it worked out well for you. It definitely worked out well for you. What prompted you to write this book, though? Right. This, the, your book originally oh, was going to have a, bro- had a broader a, theme. Early right? Go ahead. Well, early on, it was the idea that, that Florida had been the, quote, the, the largest swing state in the country, and it had that oppor- the reputation of being able to, to really swing presidential races. So I wanted to write about how it was the nation's largest swing state, not functionally center-right, supermajorities for Republicans in the legislature, Republican governors for decades, you know, the, you know functionally a Republican state. And eventually my you know, publisher sat me down and said, hey, Matt, if you'd like to sell any books, maybe we should broaden the focus a little bit and sort of focus on the, the two biggest characters in, in American politics at the moment. And I had plenty of reporting on that already. So mid-writing, mid the shift kind of changed a bit, but I, I think for a direction that that worked out really well. And some of my initial reporting on the initial version of the book is very much enshrined in, in, in what the final product is, but we just had a slightly different focus and I think it turned out really well. Well, you, well, you do, you talk also um, about how Florida is now sort of ground zero for the new Republican party. Um, you know, that we have Trump and DeSantis who, Trump who sort of, you know, brought out the mantle, DeSantis kind of carrying it forward, but this is Florida is ground zero for the new Republican Party. Both of these guys are here. There's so much else here. Republican conferences here, conservative conferences here. The uh, the Truth Social Network is based here, and uh, who is what? Flynn moved here. Yeah, Michael Flynn, Michael Flynn, moved, Flynn to moved to Sarasota. Sarasota, you could boil it down to Sarasota. Boil it down to Sarasota, the, right? Right wing capital of America. Um, so I mean, was that something that kind of, as you researched the book, came to light, or would you go into it thinking that? Yeah, well, I went into it with, with to that to, that idea to some degree already. I mean, when when Trump, you know, made Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach County sort of the quote winter White House, that really attracted national creatures here that had never really you know seen Florida as a home base before. A lot of national political writers, opinion columnists, uh, sort of uh, YouTube personalities started moving to Florida in droves and saying the policies of Ron DeSantis are why they're moving there. So we initially had Trump here with Mar-a-Lago and a lot of people were drawn to that. And then the evolution of that was, you know, during the pandemic, there were there were conservatives who were moving to Florida, not not organically, but saying Ron DeSantis' policies are why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And that sort of created a moment where 
the the national conservative spotlight is 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 directly trained on on Florida, and that that brought larger conventions and more uh, sort of organization organizations that would often have their their events in Washington D.C. or places like that. We're now now coming to Florida, and it just there was a moment in time. I think it's lessened slightly with DeSantis' fall off nationally, but I think it still very much exists today. Where Florida was sort of the post MAGA home to to whatever you know version of of the Republican Party that Trump built and DeSantis built upon. Mm-hmm. Do you think that has uh, partly driven the uh, numbers within the Republican Party? Because it's easier forget just just a few years ago, Democrats had a majority of registered voters in Florida. Now the Republicans have a majority. Yeah, the, the Democrats' lead has been been crumbling ever since back when Barack Obama first won this state in the, the mid 2000s. So it's been a process of, of Republicans taking over, but it was absolutely turbocharged in recent years, and I think that certainly helps the attention there. Um, Ron DeSantis helped fund a lot of those those voter registration efforts for Republicans, and with he was raising as much money as he was raising because of his national popularity and the, the national focus on Florida. So, yeah, I think the the sped up nature of Republicans overtaking Democrats in the voter registration numbers is is absolutely was was part of all of this and, and part of Florida becoming the the sort of new headquarters of the National Republican Party. Well, do you think now, though, moving forward, because, it, you know, it could be that DeSantis is a, DeSantis is a very young man. Um, he, he could have waited to run for president. He saw his moment. He decided to go for it. Uh, it doesn't look like it's going to work out for him this time. Uh, but this campaign has obviously raised his profile nationally. Now, has it helped or hurt the DeSantis brand? I think being a national figure initially was was very helpful. I don't think the way it has played out has helped him. Uh, it certainly opened up the rift between him and Trump very publicly. I, I think there are Trump voters and Trump supporters who who no, now no longer trust DeSantis. That said, uh, 2018, the next presidential race, is a lifetime. I, I think because he's younger, there are those who see DeSantis wanting to already eye another run. That, that he would certainly try to do. There are others who disagree. I, I think that's an open question at the moment if he does it again. I, I think this presidential race has hurt his brand compared to where he was roughly a year ago, but there's time to, to, to repair it if, if, if he wants to and if he puts in that, that level of work, uh, you know, focused on another run. He does seem, I mean, your book makes the case, I think, that he has been thinking about running for president since, well, how old was he? I mean, since he was a kid, right? He wanted to yeah. Yeah, I mean, you write that he, he looks. Yeah, in, uh, he looks in the mirror. He sees somebody who should be in the White House. Sure. No, I think that the the, the general idea that that he's been. Oh, Matt, I think we've lost you again, and you were about to make a really good point. And if you can hear me, uh, please make that point. But it looks like we might have. Lost, man. We've we've been having a hard time with the signal, with the Zoom signal, with but the Zoom signal. But uh, Matt, I, I don't know if you can hear us, but uh, if you're there, please uh, let us know. Um, well, we've got a few minutes left, so if you come back on, Matt, come back on. That'll be great. We'd love to hear you in the last few minutes. But um, we've been talking to Matt Dixon, who is a um, reporter for NBC News, formerly the Tallahassee bureau chief for. Um, Politico, Politico. Um, longtime um, reporter um, uh, covering um, politics in Florida for quite some time. He has a new book out called 
Um, Swamp, Swamp Monsters. Monsters. Trump. Trump versus DeSantis, the greatest show on earth, or at least in Florida. Uh, it does not go on sale until a week from today, although you can order it now on Amazon. You'll Apparently it will be delivered to you next week if you order it in time. Um, it, it, it is a, a really good review of where we are in this race, and it's at a pivotal, pivotal moment right now in this race. The Iowa caucuses are about to begin, uh, followed very quickly by New Hampshire and South Carolina. This thing is going to be over before you know it, and it's not looking like it's going to work out the way DeSantis had hoped. No, it does not. It looks like we will be having a – I mean, anything can happen, but we're, we're, it looks like we're headed for a, a, a repeat of, uh, uh, and, and Matt is one of the folks who, like, uh, like other reporters, because there's so much uh, interest in Florida politics, uh, reporters like Matt have gone on to work for NBC. Uh, and, you know, uh, Steve Contorno, who worked for the Tampa Bay Times, he is now uh, working for CNN. Oh, Michael Bender went and, on from covering um, Florida and Tallahassee yeah, to going to the New York Times, Times and he was it was all over the place. There's a lot of interest, obviously, all around the country in Florida Man. And, in fact, that's one of the things that um, Matt says in his book is that the um, elephant has long been the symbol of the Republican Party, but these days it might be actually a shirtless um, Florida man, perhaps, crushing a can of beer against his forehead. And don't forget, we have uh, the Florida legislature will be convening a week from today, uh, which people often joke that is the least safe time in to be in Florida is when the legislature is uh, meeting in session, because you never know what kind of laws they might decide to pass, as we mentioned. And I wonder how much attention um, Ron DeSantis will actually even be paying um, will he even be attention here? to the legislature in the um, um, spring because uh, he'll be busy um, losing his bid for president. He, so He was in Iowa. He's been spending, he spent most of the holidays uh, campaigning in Iowa. I don't believe uh, Donald Trump spent, he spent New Year's Eve at Mar-a-Lago uh, because he is pretty confident that he's going to win in Iowa and then move on to South Carolina and New Hampshire and pretty much lock this uh, nomination down. And then Trump v. DeSantis will be all over, though you never know. We'll see what happens. They, we, we, You would have thought that Ted Cruz and Donald Trump would have never made peace. I could easily see Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis making peace. That could definitely happen. Um, thanks to all of you who tuned in today. Thanks to our callers. Thanks to those of you who emailed. Thank you to DJ Spaceship for um, manning our phones. And thanks to Florida man John for manning the board, as he always does such a good job with that. Um, stay tuned on this January 2nd, the uh, second day of 2024. Um, uh, up next is Alternative Radio. Um, followed by Harrison Nash. Followed by Harrison Nash. And Harrison Nash, um, it's, it's the music Tuesday, always doing great music. There's lots of great music. Stay tuned all day to WMNF. There'll be music all afternoon um, and into the evening. And then um, tomorrow back, um, Midpoint with Shelly will be on at 11 o'clock. Um, and then um, uh, followed by NPR News. So let's uh, go out now, listening to a little bit of Stevie Wonder, Higher Ground. That's what I am hoping for in 2024. This is WMNF Tampa.